Is the MOD preparing to investigate its own soldiers over allegations of abuse in Afghanistan? Islamic State will be out of Iraq within months, says the British government. The signs now look promising that we will be able to see Iraqi forces recapture Mosul. And in a world at war, hands up who knew yesterday was World Peace Day. British troops are facing a fresh wave of criminal investigations into alleged abuse. Criminal investigations have previously focused on Iraq, but a new police unit has been set up to investigate claims of crimes by soldiers serving in Afghanistan. Well, Charlotte Banks has the story. Charlotte, what do we know about this unit? Well, this new unit has been set up by the MOD to investigate claims of abuse in Afghanistan specifically. More than 550 historic allegations of war crimes in Afghanistan are now being investigated, with claims of abuse made by 157 different Afghans. The new Afghanistan-focused inquiry has its headquarters at RAF St Morgan in Cornwall, and it's codenamed Operation Northmore and it's being staffed up with officers from the Royal Military Police and also from the National Crime Agency. Now, cases currently under investigation include claims by a Taliban bomb maker who says he was illegally arrested and then held for 106 days at the British base uh, in Camp Bastion. Sirdar Mohammed is his name, and he says he was captured in 2010. Um, but at that time, British troops faced a dilemma because they believed if they released prisoners like Mohammed, then there was a threat that they could be tortured and even killed by the Afghan authorities. But if they released them, then they posed a danger to British troops. Mohammed, for example, could have gone on making bombs and... Um, endangered British troops on the ground. Um, however, Mohammed says he was bitten by a dog and beaten by British troops when he was arrested. Now, Tom Tugendhat is a former army officer who served in Afghanistan. He's now a Conservative MP, and he had this to say. I think it's extremely sad that what uh, Britain seems to be doing is forgetting that the soldiers who were sent over to Afghanistan and Iraq were sent there by a lawful government, the government of the United Kingdom, under a lawful mandate, the mandate of the United Nations, to support another lawful government, the government of Afghanistan. And now those who were fighting against all those lawful justifications for support are using the law to attack British soldiers. So, Charlotte, how similar are these investigations to those carried out by the Iraq Historical Allegations Team, or IHAD? Well, they do appear to be very similar, but it's a different team investigating the Afghan claims. As you mentioned, previous investigations have, almost 1,500 of them now, have focused on allegations of abuse by British troops in Iraq. Now, that work faced criticism after it emerged that most cases were lodged by law firm public interest lawyers who was actually closed down in the summer following um, legal aid being withdrawn over claims of irregularities in the way that the firm operated. There are concerns that once again these cases from Afghanistan campaign are being brought mainly by law firms. Now Lieutenant Colonel Chris Parker commanded 7th Armour Brigade in Iraq. He says while troops should always be investigated for potential wrongdoing their difficult circumstances in a war zone should be taken into account. We have seen too many times when inquiries have been called which have interrupted careers, they've caused huge stress to families, to loved ones and of course the individuals themselves. Um, and often these have been, as we know, 
brought to bear by, let's just call it um, quite strange legal um, firms and practices that have been, uh, some, some people call them ambulance-chasing lawyers. Um, and, the, and this is now good to see that the armed forces are being backed by the public and the government against such practices. Um, but again, we have to be realistic. We, we have to accept some responsibility for our actions. If you're a policeman, you do the same. And if you get it wrong, you expect to be in trouble. So, Charlotte, what is the MOD saying about Operation Northmore? Well, in a statement, the MOD said that our armed forces are rightly held to the highest standards and whilst rare where there are credible claims of criminal behaviour, we should investigate them. An independent investigation is the best way to make sure that innocent personnel aren't dragged through the courts without cause. None of the Operation Northmore allegations investigated so far have been referred to the Service Prosecuting Authority. So, Christopher, um, are you surprised by this announcement? No. I mean, the announcement was inevitable because it's been working out now for eight and a half months. Um, I, I tell you, it would be quite interesting, Mohammed getting upset because after 110 days he was still there. Lucky he wasn't in Guantanamo, somebody might say. The Prime Minister's view on this is very simple, uh, that we've got to actually get some proper line about how far you go back what the terms of uh, reference are for these sort of investigations and to maintain the terms of reference what she has been advised is the difficulty you don't know what's going to come up in an investigation and that may may make terms of reference completely null and void and that's the danger of them you wouldn't get the Americans doing this the Mm. Americans are laughing at this at this very moment Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, stay with us Uh, Charlotte, thank you uh, military gains against Islamic State terrorists in Iraq and Syria could be undermined by failures of political progress, according to a group of MPs. The Commons Defence Committee says the government needs a grand strategy, including a plan for what happens after defeating the militants. Well, James Hurst has been speaking to the committee's chairman, Julian Lewis. Well, clearly great progress is being made in Iraq, and that's because uh, the forces on the ground are identified as ones we want to help. There is a government there that we are content to see establish control, uh, and it is probably only a matter of time before ISIL Daesh is squeezed out in Iraq. In Syria, it's more problematic, and I think one of our key witnesses, a senior general, actually said that our air effort in Syria is marginal uh, and most of the air effort is being made elsewhere and unless or until we can identify who we want to take over in Syria, I think our contribution there is more questionable. You say that the military action is necessary but not sufficient. Does that mean you want more military action or you want something to go with it? Uh, No, it it doesn't mean we want more military action. It means that we must always have a political end state in mind. And if it is always going to be the same model of pluralist and inclusive democracy, well, hang on a minute, I don't see all that many uh, Middle Eastern countries that conform to that model. So uh, we've got to always determine what our favoured outcome is, and if the only practical outcome is one that we don't regard as sufficiently up to our standards, then we've got to accept that we shouldn't get involved. This suggestion you they need a grand strategy. What does what that mean? Well, what we're trying to say is that we mustn't get too obsessed with individual groups in individual countries, because otherwise then you're always being reactive. 
And it may well be the case that ISIL Daesh may be removed from that territory in both Syria and in Iraq. However, that doesn't mean to say that it won't pop up in other territories, uh, as it already has shown in Libya, but it also means that we have to remember that there were other Islamist groups before this one came along, that they pose a continuing threat, uh, they are spreading an ideology on an international scale, and we need a strategy that will enable us to respond on an international scale too. The only thing is, some people would argue that you look at situations like those in Iraq and Syria, and there's actually politically very little we can do that we have tried and tried and tried, and sometimes you just have to do what you can do when you can do it. Yes. I mean, I'm not saying there is some seamless, uh, perfect answer to all these things, but what one certainly has to recognise is that if you are going to get involved militarily, even on a piecemeal basis in a place like Syria, you've got to be clear on what the outcome is that you want. One of your calls in this report is for more transparency from the Ministry yes. of Defence on, on strikes. In what way are they not being transparent and, and, and why do you see that as a problem? We have a lot of information that we managed to extract from the Ministry of Defence in terms of the airstrikes and the types of airstrikes that they were, but there's correspondence there between me and between the Secretary of State from Defence in the appendices which shows that it was like drawing teeth and the Ministry of Defence simply would not identify to us uh, those occasions out of only 65 strikes in nine months, um, uh, 31 of those in the first two months, how many of this very small number of airstrikes were actually in support of forces fighting on the ground. That is not what I call transparency. That was Dr Julian Lewis talking to James Hurst. Well, let's talk now about Mosul. And yesterday, Sir Michael Fallon, the Defence Secretary, was in Iraq. The signs now look promising that we will be able to see Iraqi forces recapture Mosul and we will see Daesh push beyond Iraq's borders within uh, the next uh, few uh, months. So, Christopher, is he right? I think, in, I think Sir Humphrey would say to a minister, that's a very courageous statement to mm. make. You know, how many times have we heard it, you know, we'll be out of here by Christmas, uh, we'll be out of here before we have to fire a shot, and to say that ISIL will disappear from Iraq, not Mosul, Iraq, within months, disappear to where? Oh, and how to come back, etc., etc. But he's got, I mean, basically, Mosul is on the run now, I think, most significant. It is, but then we see this IS apparent uh, mustard gas attack, don't we, um, in the news, and yeah, you wonder how hard the fight to take Mosul will be. It is, it is hard, and, and one of the things about the mustard gas, uh, early last week, the Americans, or basically the Americans, not just the Iraqis, hit 50 uh, centres where they're holding stuff like mustard gas. Mm. Uh, chemical weapons are actually very difficult to store, and the Americans destroyed them. And it's bit by bit. What you don't do is to say, right, there's Mosul. We'll, we'll stand around like, you know, as if this were Jericho and blow the horns that all fall down. You have to take pieces mm. bit by bit. And also you have, to, you have to do, and what's happening at the moment, you're allowing ISIL to get out and go because you don't want to you don't want a full blood battle with them you just want the you want the city back and when you've got the city back you run into the next biggest problem you have you 
indeed have to have a force from Iraqi forces that you can actually hold the city yourself. And that's, gone the, that's the biggest task. So, and that's why it's a very courageous thing to say that ICE will be out of Iraq. Yeah, I mean, he can say that, the Defence Secretary. But at the same time, when you look at that uh, Defence Committee report, they, they were saying that, you know, beware talking about just sort of gaining ground, but also if you're not dealing with the economy, the thing that's supporting IS and the ideology and fighting that as well, well, what do you do? Listen, it's almost... Listen, listen you're, back, you're back to the original thing. Uh, everybody goes, piles into Iraq uh, in 2003 and say, right, we're going to sort this out, we're going to get rid of your man, for example, and nobody thought what happens next. And that's exactly what the committee's saying. I tell you a particular thing with Julian Lewis's committee, and it's a very good committee. Julian Lewis, Julian Lewis is one of the best defence committee chairmen they've had for a long time. Um, he says that you is have... a friend of yours? He isn't, actually. Oh, right, OK. Nor does he owe me money. Uh, <laughs> but no, seriously, what he's talking about is is making up rules and deciding you must do A, you must do B before you can expect a result. One of the problems with the way the Middle East is going at the moment, certainly uh, Iraq and certainly Syria, is that the United Kingdom is a junior partner in a coalition and you cannot dictate how things go. And we would dictate far more, and the Americans would take no notice of us. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come, UN peacekeeping. Who writes the rules for the soldiers on the ground? And looking for a new job? Try MI6. PFBS Sit Rep. Well, in Syria today, the ceasefire appears to be over. Aid convoys have been attacked. Medical facilities have been bombed. Civilians have become greater targets than ever. Today, Syria's president insisted his forces weren't behind an air attack on an aid convoy near Aleppo, in which 20 people died. Well, speaking to the Associated Press, he insists they didn't have anything to do with the attack. Those convoys were in the area of the militants, were in the area under the control of the terrorists the people or the militants, the terrorists who are responsible of the security of this convoy. We don't have any idea about what happened. Bashar al-Assad there. Uh, Christopher, um, where have we got to? First thing is that none of the people who are taking part in the war, i.e. Uh, President Assad, um, the Russians and the rebels, none of them want this war to end. What do they want? They want it to continue, because if they had a ceasefire which was extended into a truce, then it was very, very clear that none of them would have the sort of position that they would need to actually say, I won in the end. So they don't want this truce to get any much further than the humanitarian mm. uh, truce, and after a couple of weeks, back to the very business. And quite often when you have a ceasefire like this, uh, what you're doing, you're, you're repositioning your own people, you're getting ammunition in, you're having a rest from the fighting. But my view is that none yes, of them wants it Isn't there going the to be a point, though, where people will eventually become war-weary? Uh, I think they probably are more wary, but the people who are actually doing the fighting are not the people. The people that are running it are not the people. Uh, and if, you lo if you're, you know, just listening to uh, President Assad there, very confident man. You know, I am. You know, why would I want to give up this war now? Why would I want to have a, a truce? I'm winning the thing. I'm actually holding it. If I am the Russians, I don't want to give up the war because if I had to give up the war, I haven't proved that I got the grip on the whole thing. If you're the rebels and you give up the war, the chances are you're going to be blasted out and you'll, you'll, mm. be, you'll be nowhere. What's particularly interesting is that when you hear the denunciations, as we've heard this yes. week in the United Nations, President Obama, United Nations General Secretary Ban Ki Moon, Secretary of State John Kerry, 
They're all in Last Chance Saloon. These guys are all retiring in the next couple of months and they haven't fixed the biggest, biggest problem of their whole office. They haven't actually succeeded and their legacy is, is, is finished. Can you actually envisage any particular event that could make a real difference in this war? Yeah, you can make a difference. You can actually improve your position. And there's things exactly as happening uh, today, early this morning, about 8 o'clock this morning, through the Bosphorus, through that bit between Asia and, 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 and Europe and Turkey. Uh, the Russians sailed the Admiral Kuznetsov, which is an aircraft carrier. In fact, it's their only, air, only aircraft carrier. They put that off. And they're going to stand that off the coast of Syria. That gives them two extra legs. It gives them air power, extra air power. That is the sort of game-changer that where the Americans look at it and the Americans say, we can't actually do anything about this, and the Russians, we're just going to have to let the Russians go on doing what they are doing. And that is the shorthand, in fact, what's happening in Washington today. There's a meeting this afternoon in about three hours' time between the Russians and the Americans, around about sort of seven, okay. seven or eight o'clock hour time. It'll come to nothing. Now, UN peacekeeping forces were created from almost the first day of the United Nations' existence in 1945, and the first deployment was sent to the Middle East and is still there. Peacekeeping, by its very name, suffers one operational dimension. The force can only go in when there is peace to be kept. Well, therefore, peacekeepers have to be invited in under very, in under very tenuous conditions, including rules of engagement. Well, the weaknesses of the whole system were laid out to me when I spoke to Colonel Richard. Wesley, who served as a company commander with the Royal Welsh Fusiliers as part of the UN peacekeeping mission in Bosnia. Well, we were sent as part of the um, United Nations Protection Force, as it was called initially, to um, Bosnia, and specifically I was sent to the eastern enclave um, of Garajda. About 300 of us were there, sent there to protect the Muslim inhabitants of, um, of the town. Um, and uh, the situation deteriorated um, pretty much from the get-go, and we ended up having to fight um, the Bosnian Serb forces uh, in order to buy time for the Muslim forces and ourselves to protect the town and prevent it from falling, um, as, uh, as a month later Srebrenica did. So a very confused, very complex mission, uh, as are many UN deployments, um, and um, I hope we've learned the lessons that we learned from, uh, from Garajda and Bosnia. What kind of lessons do you think can be learned from your experience? Uh, well, the first point, I suppose, is all about mandates and the role of the UN. The UN is absolutely critical. It gives all missions their legitimacy uh, and it, it binds the nations together to ensure that um, consent for operations and a proper mandate for operations uh, are, uh, are, are issued. Um, where the, where the UN got it wrong in Bosnia was it also tried to command soldiers on the ground. And it's not designed for that. It's designed, as I said, to give the mission legitimacy. And I think what we learned, particularly by the time we went into Kosovo um, some uh, four and a half years later, was that the UN's vital, but you need something, uh, a military organization, to command military troops on the ground. Because at the end of the day, you have a duty of care to those people you're deploying to make sure you can resource them, sustain them, and if necessary, 
necessary, get them out. Mm. And the problem that we faced in, in Bosnia was actually getting us out. So, um, so whatever, whatever is going on at the moment, um, as long as the UN maintains its key function, but there is a military control for operations, which is, again, accountable to the UN, then things should be fine. Mm. You were credited with saving some 10,000 lives. And you say, though, that the problems that you encountered was, was getting people out, getting your troops out. Just how difficult did it get? Well, um, they, the, the Bosnian Serbs embargoed all movement in and out of the uh, of the enclave of Grajda, which meant that not only could we not get out or rotate our troops or anything like that, we couldn't get humanitarian aid and supplies in. So we were all but um, stranded some 65 kilometres behind Serb lines. So we had to do some fairly tight contingency planning, uh, and we had two contingencies for getting out, one which was very high risk uh, and involved um, a big fight, um, which we were keen to avoid given that we were ostensibly peacekeepers, uh, or, uh, as it turned out, the way we actually went out, with consent from both factions um, and, and a brokered deal uh, to, to leave Garajda. When we look at peacekeeping operations today, UN peacekeepers have recently been criticised in South Sudan for failing to intervene when civilians, including aid workers, were being attacked. What, if any, justification is there for allowing that to happen? Well, again, it depends on the mission that you're given and the mandate you're given, because that will drive your, your, your national rules of engagement. Um, it was very woolly back in uh, 1995 in Garajda, but we made a moral decision that we couldn't stand by and see the Serbs just roll up the town because we knew a lot of people would die. Witness Srebrenica, 8,300 people murdered as a result of the UN soldiers not intervening in a robust fashion. So uh, it's a number, it's a, it's a co combination of things. Firstly, the mandate the UN gives you, the mission you have, the rules of engagement to engage, uh, and accepting also that in peacekeeping operations, peace is never an absolute. It's always a relative, and you can have peace in one area and not in the other. Um, and, uh, and the key is to try and stabilise situations throughout. And if it means abandoning impartiality at stages to redress that balance, then that's a decision for commanders on the ground, and those commanders must be backed up with a strong UN mandate and a mission from above. Otherwise, you are putting them in harm's way without the means with which to defend themselves and, as importantly, the people they are in, in there to, to protect and keep the peace for. And if we look at UN peacekeeping missions today, more than ever before in terms of numbers of people deployed, um, how successful do you... I know it's a huge subject, but how successful in general do you think they are? Well, I guess the world wouldn't be asking for more if, on the whole, they weren't successful. What they do do is they, is they provide um, the, the troops provide a buffer zone and and legitimate reporting on the situation, so that um, that the media and the world can uh, learn at first hand what is happening in these situations. I think, on the whole, they they uh, they are effective. But it depends, of course, I'm afraid, on the troop-contributing nations. Uh, and if you have a troop-contributing nation that isn't prepared to back its soldiers on the ground, let alone pay them, then you are, you're, you're in a recipe for, uh, for difficulty. I think what the UK does do well is it prepares its soldiers for these missions extremely well. And I hope the lessons learned from 95 uh, and, and Bosnia have allowed them to force package these people properly so they don't just have the ability to keep the peace, but they actually have the resources to defend themselves and the people they're protecting. Uh, and that means grouping them for independent action, not just putting them out there as UN military observers. 
That was Colonel Richard Wesley, and you can read more about what happened to him in Bosnia in his new book, Operation Insanity, the dramatic true story of the mission that saved 10,000 lives. Well, Christopher Lee is still with me, and we're also joined by Dan Smith, who is director of SIPRI, that's the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. Good to speak to you today, Dan. Um, the CIPRI yearbook is out this week, which includes an in-depth look at current peace operations around the world. And the number of peace operations has decreased, yet the number of personnel taking part has increased. What does that mean? Uh, yeah, hello, good afternoon. I think that the primary thing it means is that the missions that are still being taken on and still being uh, implemented are ever more complex and require, therefore, in, in some cases, more personnel um, than, than before. Uh, I don't think that the trends are indicative of either a decline or an increase of interest in or commitment to peacekeeping as such. I think that has stayed politically reasonably steady as far as you can assess these things. Uh, I think it is that the, it, it's the variation in the missions themselves as they, as they move forward. And why do you think that the missions have become more complex Partly, I think that a number of, I hesitate to say that conflicts are ever straightforward. So let's say that a number of less devilishly complex, uh, complex uh, conflicts have had um, international attention for some years, and it's been possible to ease back from some of those. And what's left uh, do tend to be the more complex and more difficult ones to um, to carry out the, the UN mandates in. I think another factor, which actually reflects a little bit back to what uh, Colonel Wesley was just saying, is that the, um, there's an increasing recognition that the tasks which are uh, placed upon these UN forces are particularly complex and delicate and therefore perhaps need more commitment. So the there's a recognition that the mandates are very demanding. Mm. During the past decade, we've seen the inability of the great powers to fix the world's problems. Is it because of the complex nature of them? Uh, well, in part it is, yes. But I mean, I beg to differ with your question just a bit, because I think that from 1990 until 2010, the statistics show that the number of armed conflicts was declining almost each year. Um, so you think the world out, is, is able to fix the problems then, the, the great world powers? Is able, the world is able to fix the problems in a technical sense. We have the knowledge, we have the capability. The question is whether you can get the political agreement. So if you go back 10 years from now to 2006, at that point, we were still in a period where there was a, a confidence and an agreement to be using the knowledge which existed and to be handling many of these difficult uh, and complex conflicts. Mm. Across the last four or five years, uh, since the big financial crash, which knocked confidence in an awful lot of ways amongst some of the um, governments that give most to peacekeeping, peacemaking and peacebuilding. And secondly, it's the period which is in many ways shaped by the by the Arab Spring, as it was called in 2011, and the, the, the turmoil of the Middle East since then. Mm. In that last half decade, actually, the world hasn't been using the knowledge and the capabilities which it has as effectively as it was for 20 years before that. Why not using it as effectively? Well, partly I think the, this um, decline in confidence... Um, it, what, such a lack of leadership of, or...? Yes, and a, a lack of leadership and a distraction away from those problems 
into other very serious issues. I mean, I'm not saying that people who are in government are being distracted by uh, nonsensical tasks. They're being distracted by the task of trying to get the world economy back onto an even and steady keel again. Mm. So it's not surprising that they have been distracted. In addition, I think the crucial thing is that relations between, the, let's say, the Western group of states, the U.S., its, its allies, Western Europe on the one hand, and Russia on the other hand, have deteriorated seriously. And this has reduced the room for maneuver, which the U.N. and the um, those countries which have been um, you know, oh. brokering peace talks and peace negotiations, countries like Norway and, and mm. others, the, it's reduced the room for maneuver which they have. All right, Dan Smith, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you for your time. That's Dan Smith, who's director of CIPRI. Uh, Christopher, MI6 are looking for new staff. They should do, shouldn't they? I mean, a thousand. Uh, well, that's not many. I mean, it's only doing what MI5 uh, uh, has already started Why? to do. Uh, we are in, you know, we're talking about complex with Dan Smith here, complex situations and and how and how the whole world of not just terrorism, but the whole nut world of gathering information. Uh, has, has changed radically and what we're talking now is the fact that there are so many different agencies, our own agencies who are, for example, because of what's happened about leaking information, they're reluctant to pass information on to other agencies So it's like everyone putting their arms well, around their work, it, like it doing a test. It is sort of that, you know <laughs> after the stuff that came out from WikiLeaks etc, it was, it was exactly that and the other thing is, it is not the, the wars that they're talking about now are not simply the wars of perhaps counter-terrorism. Mm. They're much bigger complex wars, and they go right across the world. Uh, they're, they're going up to 2,500. Uh, uh, good canteen. <laughs> and that is all we have time for today. Thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBSSITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll be back this time next week. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. The bombing of Aleppo 